Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 13th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 19. The faithfulness of Israel in her early days after the Exodus was not long-lived. Jeremiah exposes the faithlessness of God's people and reveals the devastating consequences. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's always a privilege and, uh, and quite a pleasure, so I'm excited. So we are in Jeremiah today, Jeremiah chapter 2, which is not always a, a book that we read straight through, not one that shows up in the lectionary a ton. We've got it before us today. What context in terms of the prophet's life, the kings that reigned, the book as a whole, do we need to know going into the verses we've got today? So in uh, previous uh, broadcasts, previous um, uh, episodes, you, you've talked um, about the historical context of the kings. And in, in chapter one, in chapter one, you have Jeremiah described his call. Uh, the Lord coming and calling to him. So there's there's a lot of the Lord saying in chapter one, but the Lord is talking to Jeremiah, and it's a conversation between between him him and the Lord. When we get into chapter two, now Jeremiah is going, and it is thus saith the Lord, but it's it's Jeremiah speaking to the people. And so the conversation is is going to be much more that way. Um, and when we come into this, also, something interesting to keep in mind is that, like, Jeremiah is not really writing this as he goes, right? Yeah. And so Jeremiah is a, a mostly a preaching prophet throughout the entirety of his life, and then he's sort of commissioned to write these things down later on. Now, that doesn't mean that any of the things listed in here are untrue or, or anything like that, but we generally have an appreciation for things, why maybe they're important, understanding them in a particular way or a context or a relationship or how it is that they turn out. We understand them sometimes differently uh, in the in, in retrospect as opposed to as we're going through it. And so uh, there are probably a great number of things over the course of a very long life in ministry that Jeremiah is preaching, but these are the things that are included, um, and they're included for for a reason. Um, either you know, and as you go through the book of Jeremiah, it 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 is fruitful sometimes to ask, you know, why why this? Is it because it's clean and it gets the message across? Then it's it's fairly um, to the point. Or is there something probably about this kind of in retrospect and in the story that that means something? Well, for us, as we're starting out, I mean, we're at the beginning, so we don't have a lot of other context, you know, to go with as far as the preaching and ministry of, of Jeremiah. But 
but we do have some context and some history for for Israel, right? And so, again, something to keep in mind, like you said, is that kind of early on, uh, we we like to describe there being um, <laughs> uh, like a honeymoon period for for Israel, um, but then sort of as the relationship goes on, um, Israel Israel is not nearly as faithful, right? That that honeymoon period is over. There's been there's been a lot of kings. Like this is a long time coming. This isn't something like where they start screwing up and then Jeremiah is out here weeping. I mean, this has been a long process of a great number of kings of going through where you have Israel as a unified nation through David and Solomon, and then afterwards splitting up and what's happening to the happened and happening to the to the northern tribes, and now we're here. And so there's just there's a tremendous amount of history. And when we when we hear the words of the Lord in in this incredibly lamenting, painful, angry way in this chapter, try to keep in mind that this is this has been going on for a long time. It's just a lot because uh, sometimes we hear God in the Old Testament and He seems really angry, but uh, but He is, and and the reason that He's angry is not because they screwed up somewhere. Like it's because they are making uh, um, um, they're making a profession of um, uh, of turning away from God and going towards these worthless idols, um, doing things to God that that isn't just dismissive, but but really really disrespectful, and not just like disrespectful, but um, but trying almost to. Um, provoke God in in the way that they treat Him, taking things that were dedicated for God and turning them into other things, um, you know, mocking God in sort of a way, and and running off with these with these other gods that don't that again don't even exist. So, um, why don't we go ahead and we'll read through some of this, and we can we can hear and we can see some of this in the language because again, it's not just things. This is a relationship. It's a relationship that has a lot of history. It's a relationship that has a lot of context to it, um, and and so let's let's hear what Jeremiah has to say. We'll talk about the relationship between uh, God and His people and and His nation, and hopefully we can see this in a way that that makes sense uh, and and that we can we can almost feel, mm. you know. Yeah. So let's 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 do that. All right. So Jeremiah chapter two, beginning at the first verse, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the yeah. Lord. Or you want to stop there, Pastor Lionel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's stop there because... Because this is this is sort of the the first little objection, right? You know, somebody says, "Man, we used to be so close, but <laughs> we used to be so." What happened? And so this is kind of the the first beginning part of that, right? I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Yeah. So again, the the relationship between God, between Christ and His Church, right, um, is supposed to be mirrored in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And this is not merely supposed to be some sort of cute little example, but the paradigm for what it means to love as a husband 
is found in God, found in Christ, the way that he loves his church, the way that he has always loved his people. Um, in the same way that God is called Father. He's not called Father because he's like earthly fathers. The paradigm for what it means to be Father is found in God, and the only reason that we get to be called Fathers is when we are representing and insofar as we are um, we are his, his representative acting like he is, right? So in the same sort of way, what it means to be a husband, really, is to love as the Lord and to love as Christ. And so he's talking about this relationship between him and the church. And, you know, for us, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to see it as that. And it needs to be this relationship. And it is a loving one. And, a, and, a, and it is a passionate one. But it's not necessarily one where, you know, you kind of think of, I don't know, you know, junior high kids and, you know, oh, I think you're cute or something. But it is a, it's a relationship of a passionate love that is in, in devotion, right? That is in uh, promises made and promises kept. That it, uh, a, a passion that is found in doing things uh, that would be impossible in a in a different context, and for the Lord that means literal miracles. Um, for for us, perhaps as human beings, it means um, you know us growing up and becoming men and not being boys anymore, as the Holy Spirit moves us. But but this devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was the holy one of the Lord, the first fruits of harvest. Well, so, um, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, the devotion of your youth. Like, did God forget what it was like back then? That's they, what I wondered too. <laughs> <laughs> the wilderness period wasn't exactly all roses from what I remember reading in the book of Exodus and the other parts of Moses' writings. Yeah. Well, so it begs the question, right? Because God didn't forget. Um, but it's but it's going to be a, a relative thing, like a perspective thing. Uh, if if we are looking back at the Exodus and we're like, dude, it was terrible back then. What are they like now? Mm. Like if he's if he's looking back and he was like, man, back if only we could go back to the days of the Exodus where you were trying to murder Moses and go back to Egypt. You're terrible now. What are they, how terrible could they possibly be? Well, actually, we find out later on that they're worshiping gods by sacrificing their own children and burning them to death. So I suppose, I suppose there's a sliding scale, right? Um, but yeah, but in in you know, as as the Lord is looking back, <clears throat> certainly there is the case. There is the case that that they had. Um, a lot of rejection and a lot of rebellion and a lot of different things. But you know what they also had a lot of? Uh, repentance. Now, we can we can pull out any particular – because eventually they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness for their lack of repentance, right? They're going to go back and be with Egypt, and they were punished for that. But there's a lot of instances in which they grumble, in which they complain, in which they're punished, and in which then there is repentance. Moses is there pleading on behalf of the people, pleading for God's mercy. Those terrible things happen, like the, you know, the fiery serpents. And then, you know, they call out, and they're looking at the, at the things. So there, there is this cycle of them uh, sinning, falling into sin, uh, grumbling at the Lord, uh, the Lord rebuking them. But then when the Lord rebukes them, generally speaking, they turn back to the Lord. And the thing that makes it different now is that they don't. They are ignoring the fact, well, Josiah aside, right? Um, they don't. And by the way, like as soon as Josiah is gone, they're gone again, right? So um, it's that lack of repentance. It's not just the sin. The sin has always been there. 
but it's the lack of repentance. Nobody turns to God anymore. And that's the difference. Does that make sense? It does. That's that's a that's a, an excellent point because as I was reflecting, like I said earlier, you know, the the wilderness wandering period is not really looked upon as a time of great faithfulness, but the the cycle of rebellion and repentance, the repentance comes time and time again. And, and you're right, it it simply hasn't in the years that Jer- that has been leading up to the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. Josiah is maybe a, a blip on the radar where there is a moment of some repentance, but right after Josiah dies, things just they slide downhill really quickly, as you said. There's not that repentance. What about in in verse three, where the Lord said, or Jeremiah says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. the The main image that's running through this text, the main truth is that relationship of the Lord as husband, Israel as bride. But you do have this matter of, of Israel being first fruits here. What is what's being communicated there in verse three? Well I, I I think there's some some current historical context that are going on too, right? So when uh either they're in the wilderness, uh maybe they're fighting with the Amalekites or something. Or even afterwards, and they're coming into Israel, uh, into into the land of Canaan, right? With with Joshua, um, the Lord fights for them, mm. and they do have moments like when they're going to go and fight it. I I think that's how you pronounce that city, right? It's Ai, and then uh, and and then they decide to go on without the ark, and then they get smashed, and then they come back and do it again, and everything's fine. So, but the but again, the point is is that when they are Dealing with other nations, they turn to the Lord and they trust in the Lord. And when they trust in the Lord, then then they do well. And when they don't trust in the Lord, they don't. But when they're with the Lord and they're turning back to the Lord, you know, they're they're holy, right? They're untouchable. They're set apart, and they will win in impossible odds, right? Even you you take a look at you know Gideon with his what a hundred men or something. Right, uh, several hundred. But the but the point is, is that the numbers don't matter. The only thing that matters is that the Lord is there and the Lord fights for you. But now, in this particular uh, historical context, that the kings, both of Israel and Judah, are trying to uh, they're they're trying to play politics. They're trying to play politics with Egypt, and they're trying to play politics with Assyria. They're trying to play politics with um, with Babylon. Um, and they're they're trying to not turn to the Lord, and in fact, that's that's one of the reasons that Jerusalem is going to get sacked. Right? Is that um, is that their their king absolutely refuses to humble himself before the Lord, and um, and so you know Babylon comes in, and, and and that's that. But but it's this sort of thing. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt, and disaster came upon them. So yeah. Uh, so there's two things we can talk about what the first fruits of his harvest mean, but but it's this relationship. And if any any nation came at them, they trusted in the Lord, and the Lord, even if he had to, you know, rain down, uh, you know, giant ice balls from the sky or or freeze the sun in place, uh, Israel was going to win, right? But then you take a look at this first fruits of the harvest. What does what does that mean? Um, I, I think. I think that we, from from our particular vantage point, vantage point, uh, can can really see this as a as a Christ reference. Um, I don't think that it's terribly explicit, um, but I but I think that's what that means. The first fruits of his harvest 
blood harvest. What do you, what do you mean? Well, he's not just the Lord of Israel. He's, he's the Lord of all. But Israel is the first fruits of this harvest where he's come to redeem all of humanity. And then it's an interesting sort of reference, right? Because if you, if you say fruit, like what should you think of? Uh, you, know, you probably think of the garden, right? Yeah. And so really the plan is and always was to redeem all of humanity. And Israel was the first fruits of this. But the point is that, you know, eventually through, uh, through Israel and through this line comes the Messiah to redeem the whole world. Um, and this is also one of the reasons why the Lord uh, defends so viciously. Like, it's not just about Israel, yeah. right? It's about everything and everyone. Like, it's not, oh, these guys aren't good. I'll just drop this and go get someone else, right? No, 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 no. We've had a promise and a line from the beginning. So the Lord is faithful, and he's faithful to them and to his covenant, to the promise that he made back in Genesis 3.16, 3.15, so I think that's what that's all talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a helpful explanation. So in the first three verses, you basically have the Lord telling his people, look at the way it used to be. Look at the, and again, not that it was perfect, that the people never sinned, but look at the, the rebellion and then the repentance and look at the way that I delivered you, that I protected you. I, as you, as you said, he defended them viciously for the sake of this promise. Look at the way it used to be. And now in the following verses, we're going to hear how everything has just completely deteriorated. And as you said, this is a, a long time coming. So how far do you want to read from verse four? Um, I want to read uh, probably to the to the end of verse eight. Okay. But um, and right before we do this, uh, also just notice that he starts basically with uh, what would essentially be called gospel. Yes. Right? He's he's about to rebuke you, right? And he's going to rebuke you really hard. But but the rebuke is not meant just to smash you. The rebuke is meant to turn you back to something else. And he, before he gives you the rebuke, he reminds you that there is something to return to, right? Even that whole cycle of repentance and everything else. So this call is not simply meant uh, to be, I'm angry with you, but the, but it is a call to return to something else. And he does remind you of what that is before he says these next things. Hmm. That's, a, that's an excellent point. So Jeremiah 2, beginning at verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. That's Jeremiah 2 verses 4 to 8. Pastor Nell, take us into the text. Yeah, so um, the, the defining sort of moment in um, the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And this is what the Lord references and, and brings up. I think it's really interesting that he starts with, you know, what, what wrong did your fathers find in me? You know, the Lord, it's almost, it's almost humility, right? He comes up and he's, uh, and of course he knows better, you know, but, but he comes up and he's just like, so 
did I, did I do something wrong? Have I upset you? Is there something that I failed at that I'm not aware of? Oh, no, I'm, I'm still me. Okay. Well, it must be you then. Um, but it's this, it's this interesting thing, right? Cause he's like, your, your father's, your heritage, all these other things. The, it, the question is rhetorical. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Um, they didn't, they didn't find anything wrong in him because that's not where the problem is, right? The problem is with you. Hmm. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. Um, this worthlessness and worthless, uh, it's, it's referring to the idols that they chase, right? Worthless idols. So they, they chased after this worthlessness and they became worthless. Um, this references, you know, that, uh, when you, when they're with the Lord, right, they're the Lord's children and they're the Lord's children because of the Lord and their worth comes from the Lord, but if you separate yourself from the Lord, like your worth was never with you. It was it was always with the Lord and in the way that he was gracious to you. He he raised you up literally from nothing to be his own. And so separating yourself from him and especially then chasing after these things that are that are stone and wood. Like, what does that make you? You're you're you are rejecting being children. And if you wish to worship dust, then to dust you shall return. Right. And then again, this is sort of the right. They didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us into the right. Um, This is him referencing kind of what we said before. Uh, What happened in the past was they did bad things, but then they turned around and they called on the name of the Lord. But he's saying that, you know, your your fathers and you yourselves right now aren't doing that. There is no repentance. You're not you're not calling out to the Lord. You're not you know, contending with me or arguing with me, like even some of the psalmists do who are like, oh Lord, all of these terrible things are happening. Where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? Aren't you going to keep your covenant? Like there's not even any of that. You just, you're pretending that I don't exist. Right. Um, And again, not referencing any of the promises or anything of those. He says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. I've done, I, I I didn't wait for you to do good things and then give you good things. I came to you, gave you good things, brought you into the land. I made you what you were. I didn't make any deals with you in that respect. I gave you everything. I gave you everything. And what did you do with it? You you defiled my land. And you made my heritage an abomination. And so uh, this referencing that the things that you're doing like they're not just they're not just reflecting on you. It, it's not just about you, because you were always meant to represent me. And so, if you're my people coming into the land, what is the land supposed to look like? Why Why do you think that when I, I brought people in with Joshua, why do you think we were we cleared out the place, or at least we were supposed to clear out the pay, the place? Like these weren't these weren't just you know nice people living their lives, and then we were like, well, we need land, so we're going to bulldoze your village, right? Like that's not what this was. Like these, these were people that, that were here uh, doing human sacrifice, having prostitution and forced prostitution as a part of their worship, who were sacrificing and burning their children alive. And I told you to wipe them out because we weren't going to have any of that. Because where I am God, you, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, right? You shall not do those things. And that's what it was supposed to be. But now you've made it into an abomination because you're doing those very things. 
You're out there worshiping Molech and burning your children alive. You're out there worshiping Baal and doing all sorts of prostitution things. And you're not just doing it like the people were before. You're setting up the Asherah pole on my holy hill where my temple is supposed to be. So now it's a direct reflection on my name, not just things they were doing in the land before I came to clear them out. Right? The priests don't say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law don't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that they don't profit. And by the way, it's not just you know, uh, a bunch of random crazies running around and doing things. It's not, it's not that, you know, sheep tend to wander, but we've got shepherds and it's a process of people doing the thing and then being called to repentance by the priests and the prophets and everything else. It's not like the temple is still there so that as Solomon prayed, when people come and they repent, you'll hear them and you'll forgive because the priests don't even do what they're supposed to do. The prophets aren't prophesying in my name. They're prophesying in Baal's name. The shepherds, the kings of Israel aren't, uh, and Judah aren't doing the things that they're supposed to do. So exactly what is it that I'm waiting for right now? Hmm. Am I waiting for repentance to just sort of spontaneously erupt? Explain to me who it is that's left who is even proclaiming my word, except for, of course, Jeremiah, who's here right now. Hmm. And so I think, that's, I think that's kind of where we are in our reading. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a pretty picture. The, the people that should be leading everyone back, they've actually fallen too. the priests, the shepherds, the prophets. That's how far the people have fallen from that honeymoon period that they had with the Lord. And the Lord's laying this case out before his people through the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to keep looking at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Jeremiah chapter two with Pastor Sean Linnell. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 13th. We're studying Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 19 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we were looking at the first eight verses. We left off with verse 9. I'll read a little bit farther here in the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord says, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We'll pause there. That was Jeremiah 2, 9 to 13. So, 
Pastor Linnell, just to kind of working our way through this text, in the first eight verses, the Lord has told his people, this is the way it used to be. In verses four through eight, then he says, this is the way it is now. You're not even looking for me. You're not saying, where is the Lord? You're not. So now he's going to take it to them. I still contend with you, declares the Lord. Take us into these verses. Yeah. And again, you know, Jeremiah, he's he's still referred to as the weeping prophet. We kind of mentioned this in the break. I mean, if we, uh, not that it wouldn't be worthwhile, but if, if we spend and go through sort of every verse in, in detail, like it's, it's a tremendous amount of law. Um, and it's, it's really kind of a downer, but you know what the Lord is saying here, and he's, he's really trying to drive the point home. It's not just that you have forgotten my law. It's not just that you have started doing things that you're not supposed to do, or it's not just that you have forgotten, say, to keep the Passover, or maybe, you know, circumcision isn't being done like it's supposed to be done. Those would be terrible, terrible, big-time bad things. But, but those are things where, like, you've forgotten, and now I remind you, right? But what's happened here is that it's not just that you have forgotten and you're, you're being lazy or laxed or whatever. You have full-on embraced in a passionate way the worship of other gods. And the Lord's like, when does that ever, that doesn't even happen among false gods. Like the people who worship false gods who mean absolutely nothing, like even they don't switch their gods like that. They, the, the, the pagan weirdos have more integrity than you do. Like, like you realize that, right? So what are you doing? And this is where he's like, so, you know, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. I mean, they don't even switch between worthless gods, but you've switched between something that is real and and these other things, right? A God of mercy and forgiveness and grace to the God that worships by making you burn your children alive. Really? And he says this again, so that's sort of encapsulated in this, in the sense, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and not just forsaken me, but hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And then so now we continue on with 14. Yeah, I mean, verse just to briefly on verse thirteen, I think that that really does get to the heart of this the the contention that the Lord has with His people, and it is idolatry. And I, I think that's worth mentioning again that what Jeremiah has done so far in his preaching is to preach against idolatry. Now, in that idolatry, as you've mentioned, there are certain moral evils that are a part of that, but idolatry is the real problem. And I, I mean, I just I think that's worth pointing out when we think about the prophets. It's not only about how have you broken commandments you know, two through 10, but it ultimately comes back to that first commandment. Have you, do you worship the Lord? Do you fear, love, and trust in him alone? And, and that's what Jeremiah is really hammering home here in these verses. And it's, it's a double whammy. Not only do you forget the Lord who is the source of all water, but then you try to find water elsewhere and it's just, it's all going to empty out of a broken cistern. So it's, it's again, a very tragic situation into which Jeremiah is preaching here. So the rest of the text, Jeremiah two verses 14 to 19 is Israel a slave. Is he a home born servant? Why then has he become a prey? 
The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Toppenes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. That's the rest of our text for today. Jeremiah 2, that was 14 to 19. Pastor Linnell, what's what is Jeremiah doing with this section of his preaching? So in here, he's talking about their current situation as a nation and how it is that they are facing a threat on multiple sides. And he's connecting how this current predicament is related to their spiritual reality and the 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 really bad decisions that they've made with respect to their relationship with God. He had talked about that again briefly um, in verse three, where he says, you know, Israel was uh, to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest and all who ate incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. Sort of the implication being that they don't now. And he's saying that, you know, now he's saying this in detail and very explicitly, he says, you know, the, the men of Memphis, uh, uh, these, so these are cities. Um, Memphis was like the capital of, you know, of, of Egypt at one point. And, and so these, these guys, you know, shaved crown of your head, like they are, they're making you look like fools. Um, and you've, you've brought this on yourself. And so you brought this on yourself by forsaking the Lord and running after these other gods. What is your solution to that? But your solution should be, to turn back to the Lord. You, you, you did forsake the Lord. You went after other gods and now you're getting, you're getting dumped on, turn back to the Lord and I will rescue you. But that's not what you're doing in sort of an unbelievable turn of events. Your solution after turning to other gods is now to turn to other nations. In fact, some of the same nations that are dumping on you. So you're going to, you're going to do what you're going to make a deal with Assyria. You're going to make a deal with Egypt. Like Egypt kills Josiah, uh, kills Josiah. Like, I don't know exactly what you think is going to turn out here. Um, and you know, if you'll forgive me for making a nerdy kind of reference, it's sort of like in, uh, you know, in Lord of the Rings and they're like, well, yes, Yes, look, here's this evil ring. I think I will use this evil ring to make things better. And you're like, no, 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 no. Evil ring make things better? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, why not? Oh, you're an idiot. Or like when the white wizard is in his tower and he's like, you know, yeah, we're going to side with the bad guy. And then, you know, gray wizard is like, you know, he doesn't really share power, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, what do you want? And so, again, Israel here is like, man, we're kind of in a bad boat. Who, do I, who am I going to get to fight with, you know, Babylon or whatever? Maybe I'll get Egypt or Assyria. Those aren't friendly dudes. Do you not remember what they did to the north? Like, what it, 
So again, he's pointing out not only their their stupidity, but how ridiculous it is, especially since these are bad dudes. And you know there's going to be a cost for that. But returning to the Lord, what's the cost of returning to the Lord? Uh, your arrogance? Like you, you have to repent and be humble? But apparently it's less painful to you that you would lie to yourself in thinking that you can make a deal with the proverbial devil rather than simply humbling yourself and asking the Lord to help you for free. And that's kind of where he's at. So he says, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will approve you. Sin is its own punishment. And I don't even, I don't even have to smite you because you are going after things that are really bad. And there's going to be consequences for that. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of you or the fear of me is not in you, declared the Lord of hosts. Like, again, I don't have to send a plague. All I have to do is be hands off and you're going to wreck yourself, you know? And uh, and that in itself is kind of scary. Like, that's how bad and how far down that path that they're going. But I think that's that's kind of where we get to at the end of it is he's just sort of like, I don't even have to do anything right now. You're... You're doing it all yourself. Congratulations. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's not again. It's it's not a pretty text. I I appreciate the way Jeremiah does his his preaching task there in verse eighteen, where he brings up that imagery of water again, which connects so well back up to verse thirteen. This idea that you know the Lord is the fountain of living water. They left him and they've attempted to make out these cisterns for themselves. And and where are they going to look for water to fill them? Well, Egypt, their river, the Nile, the Assyrian river, the Euphrates. And again, those are, those are worthless. Those are the bad dudes, as you, as you said so well. So Pastor Linnell, we've, we've got about 15 minutes here. And, and as you said, you know, Jeremiah, he's the weeping, the weeping prophet there's a lot of law, particularly in these these beginning chapters of, of Jeremiah. And we're talking about the people of Judah living in the 600s, 500s BC, nations of Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, forsaking the Lord. How, how do we take a text like this? What What is here for us as, as Christians still today? We've got several minutes to reflect on that. It's an interesting question. I think it's an important one. You, the church has never – we talk you know, golden ages of the church. The church has always been a disaster, right? There's always been something wrong. There's always been false teachings. There's always been schisms. There's always been temptations. There's always been sin. There's always been sinners and scandals and other sorts of things. And I think the temptation is for us to see our unique situation as something different and then to make it into something more than it is when really – you know, it's just faithful preaching, uh, repentance, and the Lord's grace, you know, is all that's needed. And and in truth, that is that is always the case. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, fall into picking on sort of, you know, pet things that irritate me and then making them out to be something, something worse. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway, because why not? So... Like, for example, and this is just one example. I don't think it's the example. But I think uh, you know, one example, um, when we when we talk about, like, people not being in church, right, not coming to worship, losing their connection to the church and to Jesus that way. Um, you know, people have always kind of fallen away from the church for one reason or another. 
And I think that that would be much more akin to the way that the Lord talks about his people of old. There's always temptations. There's always false teachings. There's always struggles. There's always reasons that people fall away, reasons that people get their feelings hurt. But it's not that they've turned to other gods. It's that their faith is struggling or it's broken or it's gone cold, and then they're turned back in repentance. But it's it's not – there's no third party. There's no necessarily direct and really grave sort of adultery in that relationship. But I start to take a look at things nowadays, and I think that it's just so much easier to fall into worshiping other things, even if you're not chasing after other religions. You know, it's so much easier to say, well, we're not going to be in church this Sunday. And you say, well, why not? Well, because my kids have, you know, whatever activity it is that they're doing on Sunday. Okay. Why? Well, they're not going to be able to get on the team if they don't do this. Yeah, but why is that important? Well, because they they need a scholarship. They need to do whatever. Like, is that is that really the thing? Like, is, is secondary education, like going to college, like, is, is that the thing that, that we're worshiping now? That's the thing that's most important? Like, 40 years from now, when they're working in a field that they didn't get their degree for, and they're not playing whatever sport that they were doing again, like, you all are going to sit around and talk about the good old days, about how you used to travel every weekend and spend $300 staying in hotel rooms and buying, you know, food at the game, when you could have just put that money into a savings account and then had the scholarship that you were trying to get by playing whatever sport you were getting? Like, you could have been spending time in church and, you know, building in that relationship, something that's going to stay with you even when you're retired and you're not doing whatever vocation you're doing anymore. But but instead of that, at least you'll have, what, softball memories? Like, maybe I'm, I don't know, like, maybe I'm being a jerk right now, but it really feels like you're turning to something that is worthless. And then you are sacrificing the very thing that you're trying to get. Which, which is, you know, um, I don't know, Jesus. And also, like, if you're looking to build family connections, like, what better to build family connections around than the thing that's going to persist even past dying? And so sometimes I get a little cynical in that regard. Um, but it does, it's not just that. Like, I don't want to pick on, you know, the kids. I think that there's, there's a lot of that around. It's so much easier for us to go and entertain ourselves or to go find something else to invest ourselves in. And so it's not simply that we're falling away because somebody in church rubbed us the wrong way. And so I don't want to be in church because my feelings were hurt and I'm struggling to to have reconciliation. Those problems have always been there. Those are very akin to the previous ones when we're coming out of the land of Egypt and we're grumbling about things, and then there's a rebuke, and then we come back, and then there's this cycle of repentance. I fall into the sins, those things that tempt me, and I start feeling like maybe I'm unworthy to be in church, and so I don't come to church because I'm unworthy. And then pastor goes and talks to me and says, no, no, you know, unworthy means no faith. You need to come to church because this is where your sins are forgiven. Like that whole cycle has always been there, and it's still there. I just feel like there's a whole lot more of, well, I could go to church, but there's this other thing that's a lot more entertaining. And so I'm going to actually invest in something else and then justify why I think that's that has value. Hmm. So I think we're doing a lot of that. Hmm. We just don't call them gods. Certainly. I mean, I, I know in, in youth catechesis here at Grace, that's one of the things I try to impress upon the the confirmation students is is to tell them, you know, 
you may not have a little statue in your home. You might not have a piece of wood or a piece of stone, as Jeremiah will reference here in the same chapter. But but what is it that that occupies your attention? Where is where? What is the center of your life? And, and certainly, things like school, things like sports, a, a host of things can occupy that, such that we end up forsaking the living waters that are right there for us in the divine service each week. You, you mentioned earlier, Pastor Linnell, that sin is its own punishment, referencing there verse 19, your evil will chastise you. And I think it, it seems pretty plain to us, you know, looking back 2,500 years plus, how that was true for the people of Judah and Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, how their, their sin actually ended up being their own punishment. Perhaps part of the the struggle right now is that it seems that in these choices that you're describing that, that we see made, it doesn't always seem that, that there's a punishment for that, that I, I actually, maybe I feel better when I do those other things on church. Is that, I don't know. What do you think? I think that that's true, but I think that those punishments um, or those we'll say consequences, right? Because punishments sort of indicate that somebody is giving it, but, but the consequences for, for those sins uh, are, I think the most detrimental ones or the egregious ones are, are out in the future, right? It's sort of like, you know, hey, if I, um, you know, if I smoke 12 packs a day, am I going to get cancer right away or is that going to take 30 years? You know, but by the time it comes around, it's a little late. And so, yeah, we, we I'm sure that the people who are participating in prostitution worship for bail kind of liked it while they were doing it, you know? But I don't really think that that's a good long-term plan for lots of reasons. And so I think that you're right, but I, I don't think that's so unusual. I think that back then it was the same sort of deal. You know, uh, worshiping the Lord and participating in um, a life that is is chaste, and I don't just mean that in a, um, in a, in a sexual way, but a life that is chaste and holy is oftentimes in the short-term the more difficult route, but in the long term, uh, it's it's a lot better for lots of reasons. So, again, if we're going to be talking about you know families or whatever sorts of other things, you know we we invest our time. It's a lot easier to invest our time in lots of things that say are not church. Um, but in the long run, when those things are not there. All you have are memories and sort of bittersweetness of things that you can't do anymore. You know, so you sit around with your parents who have Alzheimer's and and you, you know, how do you connect with them right here and right now? Well, you know, if if you had been spending all of your time, not all of your time, but if you'd been spending a concerted effort in devotions and you've been spending a concerted effort in coming to worship and, and gathering around and building that connection and, and relationship around the word of God, I'm going to tell you right now, I minister to people who have Alzheimer's and all sorts of different dementia stuff, but you, uh, you start the worship service. They're right there with you. You know, they'll talk to you about Jesus all day long because that doesn't leave them. You know, that's, that's still there. And so in those things where like your kids move away, you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing other things. How are you still going to connect with them and be a part of their life? You know, well, did you, did you build um, a, a culture of prayer with them so that you can pray over the phone together, right? Like it doesn't even have to be a big thing, but just did you build that with them? 
can you talk to them about, hey, man, what did you do in, you know, in church this week? When, you know, is there a Bible, you know, past those things that you had always been talking with them about and that sort of relationship that can continue to grow even if they move away, even if their life circumstance change, like it grows and it matures with you. And then when one of you dies, even then it's not over. Because now I don't have to be trying to figure out how to give a sermon talking about how important softball was to you, which I refuse to preach on. I can just preach on the things that was the most important part of your relationship with each other, which happened to be Jesus. So that's very convenient, right? So when we talk about those things being its own punishment, like the punishment is the emptiness of me trying to, you know, preach about how much you love playing Pinochle. Like I can reference that because I think Pinochle is awesome. But that that's not the meat of the sermon, you know? Mm. And so I, I think that that's, it's just sort of long-term punishments. And by the way, I don't think it's ever too late. I think it's more difficult, you know, the way things go on. But look, if, if that's you, like if you're listening to this radio broadcast and you're like, man, I wish that I would have built that with my kids. Why don't you start? I don't care if they're 40 years old. Just be like, hey, I know we haven't done this before, but do you think maybe we could... We could just pray real quick before we get off the phone. I just really love to do that with you. And then just say a little prayer with them, you know? It's going to be awkward at first, but start building that, right? And eventually it won't be awkward anymore. But start building that relationship around God's word. It would have been better to do it the whole time, but it's never too late. So, I, you know, that's what I'm saying. If you know, but if you don't and you turn to other things and you try to force that, you know, living out glory days, like uh, was the Bruce Springsteen song, like, like that dude's not a hero in that song. Like it's sad, mm. right? Build, build your life around something that has worth, eternal worth, not those things that are worthless, mm. as Jeremiah says. We've got about five minutes, Pastor Linnell. And, and as you, as you said, you know, anyone who's listening that, that that applies, this, this text is for you. I think for a majority of our our listeners on sharper iron they they may be those maybe like like you and I who who see with the the tragedy that Jeremiah sees as you know as the weeping prophet looking at this and lamenting it how how do how do we in those shoes as pastors as as faithful Christians standing there with Jeremiah looking at this how how do we respond? How do we take God's word into that situation? I mean, I and I don't I don't want to tell you what to say, but what you said earlier about the way Jeremiah starts, how he leads with the gospel and gives something gives gives the people what they need to return to at the outset. To me, that seems pretty pretty key. But with again, without about four minutes left, let, let's reflect on that to close this morning. Yeah, you know, and I've I've talked with with people about that. You know, sometimes we look at the Bible and we're like, oh man, I'm going to do what so and so does. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, you're not God. So God sort of knows things that we don't know. Like I take a look at Jesus and sometimes he's rebuking people and I'm like, okay, so that's what I need to do. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he also knows what's in their heart in a way that I don't. But, you know, talking to them about the gospel and and having that sort of invitation, um, I think is, is really good. Um, if the Lord provides an opportunity, you know, to proclaim the law, you shouldn't shy away from that calling citizen or whatever else. But I think that the point is, is that if there's nothing to invite to, if they don't feel like they have a place to go, a positive alternative, then they're just going to leave. Right. So that's what he, what he begins with is he's like, I, you know, I want to be this with you. There's this really positive thing and I want to be this, you know? And, and so with most people, I think, 
providing that sort of positive alternative is definitely the way to go. Um, at the very least, you know, to lead out with. Sometimes looking at Jeremiah um, or looking at some of the things in here, like it's a lot of law. Like, let's be honest, this is law. But Jeremiah as a book is a lot longer than these 19 verses. And so if there's law for 19 verses or something like that, like, you know, at the end of this particular broadcast, this particular, you know, episode, like, don't think that that's all that's there. Like Jeremiah talks a lot about Jesus and, you know, and there's a lot of hope and stuff, especially later on as you're going to get to it in, in the latter chapters of, of Jeremiah. And not only that, but right. Like Jeremiah, the, the whole point is that Jesus is, it is coming. Jesus is coming. So there is a lot of hope. There is a lot of gospel there. And, um, and it shouldn't necessarily be the case that we, we feel or like we are perpetually the, the weeping prophet. Because as you look around and you see those things that are terrible, you know, even with, even with, you know, with Jeremiah, the things that he was looking around with, sure, uh, you know, Jerusalem gets destroyed, Babylon comes in and everything else, but, but those things are eventually restored, right? Like the, 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 not the exodus, but the exile, like they do come back. Like Jesus does come. He dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead. Like those things are there. And so we in, ourselves are, in a certain sense right now, a, a bit of exiles. You know, um, we're the church here in this world, but not of this world, and we're waiting for the Lord to come. And sometimes, yeah, it can feel kind of weepy, but, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the story. Like, Jesus, even right now, forgives sins. The Lord, even in the prophet Jeremiah, is still proclaiming his love for them. Otherwise, he just would have given up and not said anything. He's still talking and calling them to repentance, and the Lord still does that each and every day. Man, and I don't know how much time ago, but you know, but even with the kids like in you know, in confirmation, they they really struggle with some of those choices. But but even then, still some of like my kids, like these are junior high kids, and they're coming to me and they're talking to me, and they're like, you know, we were talking about this in class when I was in school, and I, you know, I didn't want to be a part of this thing. And, uh, you know, and my, my friends or whatever, like, it didn't turn out for me real great. You know, my, my friends didn't respond really well. And I'm like, I'm really sorry about that. That sounds like it was really difficult. And they're like, I'm not. It was the right thing. And I feel good about that. And I'm like, really? Because that's, that's an incredibly mature way to approach that. I have a tremendous amount of hope uh, for the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of, of these people. Um, and I think that the people in your life pray for them, love them. Make sure that the gospel is always there, right? Don't don't say that things are okay when they're not, but don't browbeat people either. Let them know that when when the Holy Spirit works repentance in their heart, that they have a place to go, and the Holy Spirit will do that. His word doesn't return void. The Lord is always faithful. He was faithful in Jeremiah's day. He's faithful in our day, and he will be faithful in the day that the Lord returns, and all of these bad things are no more forever. Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 19. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, download the KFUO app from your app store and use the open mic feature. You can send a 60-second message with your questions, your comments, on Sharp Iron on the book of Jeremiah. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.